0: Hi, folks, I'm Mark Fallows, and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player, and please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or visit TheimpossibleNetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. This is a massive
1: moment for me in terms of what I'm doing now. He was working with child soldiers. And so i spent a couple of days with him and i saw the way in which people are for no other motive other than luck mm-hmm. are just drawn into something or excluded for something and and it's completely arbitrary yeah and and in the case of these kids i mean they're done and seen and been forced to do um, horrific yeah. So, yeah and you could see it in their in their faces in, the, in their eyes father joe was saying that you know they tried all these different things they'd, they'd flown in child child psychologists from all around the world and and nothing was working until one day somebody sort of turned up with a football and then if people start playing football mm-hmm. and then people start coming out from the shadows and then people have to talk to each other people have to interact and they made more progress through football than than anything
0: else that they'd tried Born from Scottish and Irish parents, Serendipity opened a door into a career in sports publishing and broadcasting until his desire for social justice led him to Common Goal, the social impact movement for global football. Welcome, this week's guest, Ben Miller. In this episode, we explore the role of Ben's upbringing in driving him down an early career path in publishing and sport. Traversing 50 countries across South America, Europe, Asia and Africa, Ben recounts his experiences of witnessing the power of football to pause civil wars and bring communities together. Ben also describes how this opened his eyes to the latent power of football and consider how it could be harnessed in a strategic, systematic manner to improve lives. Ben describes the mission, vision and purpose of Cobb Goal and the challenges they now face as they try to inject social impact into the heart of this multi-billion dollar sport. I hope you're inspired by the passion, purpose and social impact vision of Ben Miller. Hello Ben, thank you for being on the Impossible Network podcast. Hi, Mark. Bon dia. Welcome to Barcelona. Excellent. It's great to be here. Feels more like uh, Glasgow than it does <laughs> Barcelona because it's pouring rain outside. Yeah, it's a bit grey and wet today, but um, there are far more sunny days than there are grey days. Yeah, well, I, we, we picked it, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. So if you could maybe just start with where you grew up. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, I'm a fairly an extraordinary upbringing. Mum came over from the south of Ireland. Um, from Cork to work as a nurse. And uh, my father had moved down to London to work from the west coast of Scotland. I grew up in in a small town near near, near Oxford in England mm-hmm. with three sisters and a brother. So a fairly busy, hectic, noisy upbringing. Yeah, I, I suppose what seems normal when you're younger is you become older and become a parent yourself. You realise perhaps isn't so normal, but it all felt very normal at the time. Even though there were lots of siblings around, so you were you were very much encouraged to get on and do your own stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, particularly from my father's perspective, what so, did he do? He was a businessman with lo- lots of sort of different projects going on constantly. Yeah, as kids, we did, we didn't really sort of know what what it was that he did, apart from sort of try to avoid being at the the exhausting end of parenting as much mm, yeah. as possible, <laughs> but yeah, a wheeler and a dealer, uh. and he did all right actually. As, as we as as we started to get older, and your mother, she was a nurse, but like, um, but bringing up children must have been yeah. So between. so you know, you look back at the age of um, the women of her, not not all of them, but but a lot of women of her generation. I think she had four kids by the time she was early 30s, and very much did that. And she was a very fiery personality. So yeah I can I can understand as well how that would be both exhausting and frustrating because mm. I think a lot of things that that she would say and do now you sort of look at it with with a bit of perspective you can really understand where she was coming from because I think in had had she had more time to to channel in other directions you know mm. she could have been very very successful you know had she continued in in the medical sector or elsewhere she was a pretty interesting woman with a very passionate about beliefs, but that could also mean that she was sometimes very sort of frustrated and angry about stuff.
0: Talk to me about the experience growing up of of play, the freedom to explore and develop your own identity. What about your upbringing? We were just kicked out of the house, basically. <laughs> and they'll get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Find so some from, trees, some woods, some yeah, parks, yeah, take yeah. a ball and come yeah. back
1: at dark. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think I was only taken to hospital once. Cause that's because my appendix burst and even then I was taken pretty <laughs> wow. late, if we we're in Ireland, which we, we went to every summer, no matter what happened, it would be like go and jump in the sea, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the sea water will cure yeah. it. <laughs> so we've all got <laughs> these scars all over us. Well,
0: yeah. The uh, healing power of salt water, of course. Yeah.
1: So 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 it was it was a very much outside mm-hmm. and quite free, you know, so as, all, as long as you're back by dark
0: kind of So all growing up in that one
1: place you didn't move around as an individual, I moved around, yeah, mm-hmm. because I went to school at the age of thirteen. That was I, I don't know, maybe three hours away from, so what, from that was where a, I lived. A boy school? No, it was a mixed school, a mixed but it school. was a boarding school. Right. So that was a bit of a change to go from this sort of family running around environment to a more formal. But but actually, it, it fit quite well with having grown up in a house with you know seven people the whole time to, to moving into an environment mm-hmm. where you've got to share space and. Mm follow some kind of format, some kind of regime. But beyond that, it was all right. So what was school like for the young Ben? I was quite a good student, I think, until I was about 12 or 13. When Uh, you went to boarding school. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, ironically. So when they actually started paying money for my education, that's when I least valued it. Mm -hmm. Not least valued it because I I was aware of the the surroundings. Um, So there were some incredible facilities. What Uh, school was it? It's called Oakham. I've actually still got quite close group of friends and then they're quite a diverse group of people mm-hmm. so it's 50 50 gender split there so so you know thinking about sort of themes that have been constant throughout my life you've got powerful sort of strong personality mother figure yeah. three sisters um who are all amazing and then go to a school where you know back at the time it was quite rare for a 50 50 gender parity yeah. in, in, in that kind mm-hmm. of a, in that kind of educational environment the influence of women on on the way I see the world has actually been and continues to be
0: really, really important. You said things maybe went slightly awry at boarding school in terms of maybe academic side. How does it compare with your design, your focus and application in sport and level of interest? And did you have a sense of where you wanted your career to be when you were at school? I, I had a,
1: a sense of wanting to... Uh, tell the truth about things uh-huh.
0: which which was some somewhat... <laughs> could have taken you many directions politics for one <laughs> yeah well but no it wouldn't have been politics telling the truth yeah let's face it. <laughs> it it wouldn't have been the politics because actually if you, if you look if you look
1: back at if you look back at the 80s you know you got half my family being being Irish you got the the situation in Nor- in Northern Ireland the troubles yeah um, social unrest through Thatcherism. yeah social unrest Margaret Thatcher and actually Margaret Thatcher being this figure that Maybe mistakenly, although now now I can understand it that that, that my mum sort of seemed to really embrace, and I could never get my head around that. Uh-huh. And and then you realise, you know, she'd say things like, if, "If you want someone to talk about something, then find a man. If you want, you know, to find someone to get something done, then find a woman." Yeah. And and I could see how that uh-huh. would resonate uh-huh. with it with it with a woman like my mum. I, I suppose hypocrisy or or things that were there for show, I, I'd push back on when I entered a school in which was quite progressive, and yet there were certain sort of institutions that hadn't changed for years and years. I found myself probably spending more energy than would have been wise pushing back against these things. And that's something that sort of followed into my early career as well. So when I just saw something that I thought needed to change, I would spend some energy trying to change it or draw attention to the fact or so the went why it needed to be changed. So went beyond the natural sort of youthful teenage rebellion um i don't know because i mean that there are always levels aren't there with with that so i pushed back a little bit Mm -hmm. but then i also had friends who went off down a a far darker path that so i suppose it's all relative so i don't don't know how to categorize it it was just something that was in me so how did that spirit take you into studying english and sociology actually one one of the things that sort of that made me re-engage i guess with education at the age of about 16 was literature was books and and it was completely accidental. I think I was used as an example of someone who could turn themselves around from academic doom um, when when I handed in a completely spontaneous yeah. essay about a book, Brave New World by Huxley. Of course, yeah. and and yeah. I just read this and I just thought it was the the best thing that I'd read in years, and and I just sort of wrote down
0: what I thought about it, and
1: I and I got an A. And I think
0: everyone was really, be really, really surprised. It'd be really interesting to get that essay and publish it now. It would probably on... be really embarrassing, but... Um... Oh, why not? It'd be really interesting to see, to take an essay written by someone like yourself in that period, way before the world we're living in emerged and anyone had a real sense of how social media and technology could potentially have this pacifying effect on us and see how someone writing the same type of essay today how they would approach it i think that would be really interesting it's incredibly liberating Mm. if you think of because i think people are so self-conscious
1: now because of the digital revolution Mm -hmm. that people are doing things thinking about how it's going to reflect on them Mm -hmm. i I don't know if can you remember ever having that thought when you were no
0: never yeah no
1: and it's a very good place to be in isn't Uh it just to think i'm gonna put down on paper Mm -hmm. Or, or musically or in whatever form that you, that you choose yeah, yeah. without Rodgan.
0: any consideration for... Well, you'd never think there would be any legacy for anything or any impact down the line of what you do, whether it be a photo taken with a camera and a, and a piece of film or you know, writing something down on a piece of paper because it's transitory. You don't think it's going to mm. last. And, of course, now everything is potentially there, searchable, findable forever. So, of course, maybe, yeah, we've created a monster. So you studied English and sociology, you loved books, you went to university. Did you have any sense at that time that you were going to end up in sport, content, or have a social impact? I mean, I get the sense that you had some sense of maybe social justice underpinning you, imbued in, 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 in your character, because you, as you said, you like to seek out truth, challenge hypocrisy. But were you writing down goals? Had you any idea no, at that time? No, not at all. No, it was a, like quite sort of spontaneous. I had, to, had
1: some ideas. Quite obvious and, and not really very yeah. well thought out ideas. Okay, like,
0: so how did how did things evolve through university and how you ended up in in a career in football?
1: So I was the first person to go to university in my family. Yeah. So I thought, you know, if let's just see what it's like. And I was quite surprised, you know, it was just it's pretty nice, isn't it? Yeah. I, everyone should get the chance to go because you just hang around and like <laughs> hang around and read books <laughs> and have a laugh. Yeah. Um, and um, well, so now i had a bit too much of laughing, too few books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but that's sort of part of it, yeah. isn't it? Because I think you sort of learn quite a lot from maybe not doing things right. But when I came out, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I'll just become a book publisher. And and then as, as you sort of go out into the real world and you start speaking with people, they're like, okay, well, you know, what competencies do you have to make you an effective uh, publisher of books? Uh-huh. Like, uh, <laughs> I like <laughs> Sounds books. Sounds like a good you know, idea. You know, I like you know, reading. Like, yeah. And it was actually through the first big rejection that that I had. But I saw that Collins, the global publishing company, had a graduate trainee scheme. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'll apply to that. Having gone to like, one of the lowest-ranked universities <laughs> in the country, Anglia Ruskin University. So, so I applied, and surprisingly, I got invited to the first round of interviews. And this, this was a job, so this would have been like early 90s, where you get brought into this company for a year and you spend three months in each of the sort of main sections of the the organization and then you get to choose like which one you want to do (laughs) so I did the interview and talked about the kind of books I liked and talked about my ideas about how you could sell books and where they needed to be sold and how to make literature more interesting to people who perhaps didn't have access to books or didn't have access to either buying them or finding out about them and different mm. different ways of making that a possibility so i suppose that was aligned with my thinking about making the good things in life available to everybody no matter what mm. their accidental circumstances in life it just seems very logical to yes. me to, to have that as a sort of a pillar of the, the way in which you think surprising they invited me back to the next one and so there were less people And then I did that one and the the next one. And then there were very few people and you actually got to know the other people a little bit and everybody went to Oxford or Cambridge. And I'm like, what the the hell am I doing here? And by that stage, I decided I was going to go to, I always wanted to learn Spanish. And again, I don't know why, because I I don't know, I just thought it'd be good to learn another language. During this time, I'd got offered a job at a university in Venezuela um, to be an English teacher. So while I was doing these... My, the entry I'm, level. Yeah, entry, so I was yeah. doing all these interviews with the, with the book publisher. But, but you know, I was going to go off to, that's, that's what I wanted to do. So I was working in a warehouse or something in London, sharing a flat. And off I was going to go. But, you know, if the book thing came right, then obviously i would do that. And, and by the time I'd done the third round, it was time for me to leave. So off I went. To Venezuela? Yeah. Wow. V- Venezuela was, was already uh, a challenging place. I was traveling with a, with a friend who's the editor of Channel 4 News now, Ben DePere. So we decided that we'd start in Caracas, we'd go to the coast, and we'd see if we could get to the West Indies where England were playing cricket. And on our way, we were stopped by some armed. And, oh, and then, and, yeah, and, and they were really bad. You know, they were sort of dressed in sort of tatty uniforms. The, I think the, the driver knew about it because he just drove off. I, I was really worried. Ben was quite sort of calm about it, oddly. And they sort of started going through all of our stuff, and they wanted to take his walkman. And he was like, no, no, you can't take that. You know, and they had guns. And I was like Ben, I, I think maybe just let them take the warm. And so yeah, that, that 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 was a moment where I thought, oh my god, you know, if if they decide, you know, we're in mm-hmm. a wood and nobody knew where we were, and oh,
0: I mean, the taxi driver drove off.
1: Yeah, we just gave them all the. To be honest, we didn't have much stuff, mm. so. I've been robbed a few times, and it's like when they, when people realise you've nothing, you haven't really got anything to give. Then and and you know they were right in the end. I think we ended up just like sharing, <laughs> sharing cigarettes, <laughs> and um and and then some somebody else gave us a lift, mm. and on we went. So I was just travelling around, and I got a letter, or somehow I found out that I'd been invited to the final round of these. Oh, oh. So there were yeah,
0: there you are there were th- the mountains of Venezuela. Yeah,
1: there were three jobs and. There were three jobs going and there were six people invited to this thing. So it had gone all the way down. And they knew that I was going to go and spend a year working in Venezuela. But if I had the chance to come back to the final interview, I would come back. So it happened. And uh, I won't go into the details, but I was in a quite remote place. So it was very hard for me to get to where I needed. And then I had a cheap flight. So it was... I spent two days or three days at Krakus Airport, um, like sleeping by the thing, trying to get people to feel sorry for me to let me on the flight. And all the flights were full coming back. Anyway, eventually I got, I got back to London the day before this final <laughs> round and I started looking through. And one of the things I had to do a SWOT analysis of HarperCollins as a global publisher. I'll never forget that. <laughs> And I was—I called up my elder brother Hamish, and I was like, Hamish, hey, he like, what, you know, what, what's a SWOT analysis? So you know, really, yeah,
0: the days before you could Google <laughs> SWOT I, analysis, I couldn't Google anything. So it's like
1: strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. I went to the the final day. It was it was quite formal and quite quite uncomfortable. It again, it seemed like a really false dynamic to me. But it was sort of okay. I th- I sort of felt like maybe I'd got away with it, and and they rejected me. So I was like, okay like, what do I no do? No cheap flight back to Venezuela. I, no, I couldn't get back to it. I'd had no money, so I couldn't you get back You probably to... told the school anyway, look, I'm, I'm Yeah, I, and I'd left them in the lurch as well. So that that, that was the first time I was like, okay, what, what are you going to do from here? I, I had to sort of lower my expectations mm. and, and be a bit more self-aware that, about, you know, what I had to offer. So it's a perspective change from a young person thinking. I
0: suppose you got to that, uh, that final round. It like, was know, amazing. I, no, no, but I never Rigorous expected. sort of process of... Yeah and recruitment
1: i ended up getting a job with a magazine publishing company mm-hmm. called emap oh yeah and, no E-Map. i st- yeah. started off working mm-hmm. on the architect's journal mm-hmm. and you know and again i would have been extremely disappointing to anyone working there because i knew nothing about architecture so i could write a little bit and i could make tea and stuff and i was a hard worker the, the other thing about having yeah but that's a, all that's really important
0: starting out isn't it yeah i guess I so i mean what's it,
1: going to come in I, I, I don't know because when i was meeting these people at the at the recruitment process of the the graduate training thing they, they, they'd all edited their mm-hmm. university yeah, so <laughs> newspapers have... and like had they'd, they'd done constant work experience for the wow. times to telegraph to the, the and i'm like ah oh. you know i tried to write song
0: lyrics for my mate's band they must have seen something you in you that they didn't see in others Because if you hadn't had that domain experience of actually doing editing, publishing yourself, they must have gone. Ben's got something that to bring to the table. You wouldn't have got down to that final six.
1: Mm.
0: That would be really interesting to understand what those. Maybe
1: they wanted someone that wasn't very academic. (laughs) Maybe somebody that could speak to people in a normal kind of way. I don't know. Somebody that I I also thought that you know there was something beyond just selling as many books as, as possible behind the importance of, of what books stand for. Um, an opportunity came up with a, like a construction magazine and I was doing that and, you know, wondering where this was going. And then somebody that I knew called up from Hong Kong saying that they were working for a sports marketing company. They had to make a magazine for one of their clients. Contract and publishing. And, and they knew that I was like six months into working for this magazine company. Did I know how to do it? And did I know about sport? And I knew about sport because... I played a lot of sport and I like sport, but um, I'd never thought that, right, I'm going to dedicate my life to the sports industry. One interview, opportunity to go and live in in Hong Kong. The Salary was crap. It was the most expensive place on, along with Tokyo, yeah, I think, in the world the at the time. I was okay. like the the uh, 12th employee. And by the time I left, three years later, you know, there was like 120 people or something. So, So you live this yeah. incredibly fast-paced environment whereby... Very shortly after going there, they realized they had to start making TV programs. Seamus O'Brien, the owner of the company, was like, right, Miller, you like pictures and you can write. go and
0: write the script for this TV show about Asian football. It appears from what you've just said that Venezuelan HarperCollins experience was, looking back on it, quite a serendipitous experience. Because otherwise you probably wouldn't have ended up at EMAP and ended up in Hong Kong opening that opportunity. You might have been sitting now in some dusty old office and some or publisher. I could, or I could have been sitting in a beach house in the coast of Venezuela. Uh, you could well have been, yeah. So
1: when yeah. Seamus said, okay, we need someone to do that, do it. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about editing or TV cameras. That wasn't, uh, wasn't a, a, a reason not to do it. Yeah. So I started writing, writing scripts for these weekly programs. I had to produce about Asia sport, Asian football. So their, their main client was the Asian Football Confederation, the governing body of Asian football, like UEFA here. So it was all, all of their official tournaments. So a lot of it was making programs without that much content. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were like, well, we, should, we need to start making content and then this would be a lot easier. So, you know, it's, this is not uh, neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, we needed some cameramen. So the first trip I did was to Bandung in, in Indonesia. And, and off off I went and and it was just a lucky coincidence of being interested in football, being very interested in how football has this sort of cultural mm-hmm. importance in all these diverse places around the world with diverse well, people it is. within it, them. And it it's a great unifier. It is yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I very quickly started seeing that so and and I like pictures and I like words and you know so and I, and, and I was really keen to travel. So all of those things came together and then fast forward years later we won like the asian awards for the best tv program because because we were going to places and i got the chance to go to bhutan and it was like you couldn't go to bhutan at the time with a camera unless you paid a, a huge fee what movie producers mm-hmm. were paying to film there so i took my own little camera i'm really bad at using it and i found one cameraman who'd been in a camera assistant on a film that they'd made there and he had a beta camera it was a guy who at the at the I think it's still the case Um, a few people would leave Bhutan to study so so whether uh, you know medics engineers so they needed to go to India to study and and one of the guys that had had gone turned out to be an amazing football player and so he played for this massive university in India and then they wanted they wanted him to go pro and and when he went back to Indonesia he wanted to start his dream was to get Bhutan into FIFA So, so they put him in touch so he was interested in me going there to make this program about their football infrastructure growing. And while I was there, then I saw that there's this other thing that they do archery. So the only people that had competed in the Olympics were archers and they have traditional archery. So they all wear traditional clothes. There was no radio, no TV. Well, there was nothing. Th- nothing. Yeah. So I had my little camera. I had uh, National Geographic magazine and, and the Newsweek magazine, which I always t- would take them because back then you didn't have a phone to show anyone. Mm-hmm. So you'd like show all the kids these pictures and, and everybody would be like crowding. I you know, wow. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so, so the, the archery story, which, you know, which was my big scoop. is <laughs> the kind of thing that I did. But the, so the traditional archers, you have a little wooden pole either end of this like 100 meter thing. And the, the teams would be split. You'd have two people from either side uh-huh. next to the opposing poles. And while the opponent was taking aim to fire this arrow towards the wooden stick, the opponents would uh, dance around trying to distract him. <laughs> oh. And then they'd jump out the way. Obviously, before the yeah. arrow arrived, which I thought, "Oh, this is great! <laughs> you know, this great is television, great television." Yeah. And also that there were marijuana plants yeah. growing all around, all around the place. So, I, you know, so I was like, "You know, do you, you know, does anyone smoke <laughs> this stuff?" And they're like, "What?" And, he, and we're like, "No, no, we feed it to the pigs. It makes yeah. them really, really Happy, lazy. And yeah. Really lazy. Dose on it. it gives them a massive appetite." Which as a student,
0: so I you, found out. You could true. have gone, I'm singing Bhutan. It's Ben's school in Bhutan. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, what happened is one of these guys came back from India and they, they found a hunting bow. Mm-hmm. So they brought back a hunting bow, which is not yeah. um, at the same trajectory mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. So there was a massive spike in, um, in arrow injuries. Mm-hmm. So the Timpu hospital was really, really busy and overworked. And there was this big thing about, you know, archery tradition would be modern and the safety hazard. So, so I did a story about that as well, um, plus the football story. There's this big company called IMG. Oh, yeah, of course. And, and yeah. while doing the stuff that we needed to do for Asia, we started selling bits of content um, to them.
0: What was the show that IMG produced? I used to Trans watch. Transworld Sport. Transworld Sport, yeah. I used yeah. to watch it on a Saturday morning yeah. in Scotland.
1: That, that, that was when TV was king. So, so I went back to London to work for Football Mondial. You know, they 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 had people who were like football anoraks that knew and know more about football than I could ever hope to mm. to know. You know, who scored, which goal, and which minute, and and I was just much more interested in in I suppose the cultural stories, um, which is exactly the kind of profile they needed. So mm. so it was it worked out quite well for for everyone
0: because it was. I remember back in the day, there wasn't the the internet wasn't well, it wasn't accessible at that time. In the early 90s for people living in the the capital of Scotland or in London. Well, even in Hong Kong, because I left there in 97 after the handover. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you could track things in newspapers about events and matches and international leagues, but it was trans-world sport for things like uh, running or cycling or anything beyond the traditional sort of coverage for the the terrestrial broadcasters. And Football Mondial to track what's happening in world football. Yeah, World Soccer Magazine yeah I mean it's that
1: world soccer magazine yeah. used to have the scores Oh, but that, that printed it, printed yeah. in the last six pages, mm-hmm. which is just the most archaic thing yeah. now to think about To look back on it it just seems like a different world well it was the, the experience at IMG was there it was a former goalkeeper who who had been a TV commentator mm-hmm. for, for one of the terrestrial channels in the uk and, and he was the sort of the the authority figure in, mm-hmm. in all the football content and um, early on in in one of the meetings we'd sit around and talk about different story ideas that there was uh, a woman called Helen, Helen Wood, who like, spoke four languages, like she knew, knew everything that you could possibly know about football and more. And she said, oh, by the way, you know, if Lens, which is a team in the north of, north of France, mm-hmm. if they win this, the, you know, the next game, then they're going to go top of the league and they could, they could possibly win the French league. And, you know, the capacity of the stadium is now bigger than the population of the town because it was a mining town, so it's depopulized. I was thinking, what a great story that sounds like. The boss was like, oh, good good idea, Helen. All right, Ben, yeah, you go and do it. And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, you, you go and do it. And, and I could see the look on Helen's face. You know, it's her idea. Mm, yeah. and, and French is one of the languages that she spoke fluently. I didn't speak any French, like O-level like o French. So I put, you know, I push back, and everyone just keeps their mouth shut because you know he's the yeah. boss, and you just go go along with it. And I was like, no, look, um, I think it would be much much better if if Helen goes because she, I don't know anything about French football, don't know anything about Lance and I don't speak the language. And so he sort of, mm, and and okay, so Helen can go with you to assist. And then the first thing when we met up at the airport before going it was like, Helen, this is completely your your mm. thing, and I'll help her out in any way I can. And you know, we're still good friends today. And, and she went on to to work at Chelsea and UEFA. And even then, even while I was in a sort of a quite happy place for me to be in mm-hmm. terms of stumbling into something that I really enjoyed doing, I'd always sort of wanted to push it a little bit. And, and that, that got to a head where I, I really wanted to go to Liberia. So I had this, here, like an unlikely hero for an English, Scottish, Irish kid, George Ware. I just, yeah. and, and again, there weren't that many references to But that was funny. Seeing. he was playing in Milan, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He became the first player to win the African Player of the Year, um, European Player of the Year, and World Player yeah. of the Year. I'd read somewhere that um, he he had been funding the Liberian national team during the Civil War. So I thought, okay, I wonder how I can get in touch with him. So I start, like, asking around. I eventually get a couple of mobile phone numbers. And I spoke to him once. And then I tried to call it, and then the number didn't work, and I was leaving messages around. And then one day I came back from the pub on a Friday night, and uh, I was in a, a shared flat in South London. and. One of my flatmates had left a post-it note and it said, George where?" question mark. <laughs> <laughs> called you? Called. Um, On a landline? No, with, with, with another number. Mm. So I called back and he's like, mm. okay, well, look, next, you know, in October, there's a qualifying match and, you know, it'll be a good time for you to come. It's like a safe time to come mm. and, um, you know, I'll see you there. And I was like, but like, well, what do we do? And he's like, well, you couldn't go to directly to Monrovia Airport because ah. it had been destroyed. Go to Côte d'Ivoire or the, yeah. the, Ivory, the Ivory Coast. Post, yeah, uh, You can meet. One of the old school there, and I was like, the old school, and he's like, yeah, the old school is a bunch of mates from where he grew up in Monrovia that sort of look after him when when he's there, and so meet this guy and then sort of take it from there. So I was like, oh, okay, and then I went, <laughs> I went to the the powers that be at IMG, and and they said, um, yeah, but you you can't go because they're you know it's dangerous, and you like these, oh, their insurance and are just insurance. Gonna go. no, we're not. Gonna... So we signed this waiver and I found this Australian cameraman called Scott McKinnon who was prepared to to go. And so we signed these things and, and off we went to Côte d'Ivoire and we, and we turned up and met the old school in Côte d'Ivoire and they're pretty scary guys, you know, but obviously they, they were scary to other people mm-hmm. not to ask because they had to look after us. So I felt quite confident, you know, you quite quickly get a feeling of mm-hmm. About the situation so we we, we get to monrover on a smaller plane and we go to this place there was only one place to stay that the hotels had all been destroyed you know um no hot water no no other guests and uh but well, we were all right next morning and um the, the old school guy that was that that i spoke to the most rodney so hey rodney so you know they, they call him or used to call him now he's president of the country i don't know what they call mm-hmm. him but they used to call him Apong, mm-hmm. which is his uh you know his tribal name if you like upon where so I was like, hey, so you know, where's a pong? And he's like, oh, no, no, he hasn't come yet. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> like you know, when's the match? Yeah, well, the match. The match was like three or four days off. Oh, right. I was like, but you know, when's he coming? He's like, oh, you know, he's he's coming, but you know, he's injured. And I was like, oh, oh. Uh-huh. and but I was like, but he is coming, right? And he's like, yeah. So I started thinking, right, if I've come all the way here and the bloke doesn't show up, you've got to
0: get a story. Yeah.
1: So so I, I go out and, and there's somebody I've been in touch with before, an Irish priest called Father Joe from. Don Bosque. I've been in touch. He, did, he wasn't interested in being on camera, but I just wanted to meet him anyway. And he was because he was working with um, child soldiers, and so I spent a couple of days with him. And I saw, you know, this this was a this was a massive moment for me in terms of what I'm doing now. Firstly, an an incredible empathy with you know with children, which I think is is, is fairly normal. But the way in which people are for no other motive other than luck mm-hmm. are just drawn into something or excluded for something and and it's completely arbitrary yeah and and in the case of these kids i mean they're done and seen and been forced to do um, horrific yeah. So, yeah and you could see it in their in their faces in the, in their eyes father joe was saying that you know they tried all these different things mm-hmm. they'd, they'd flown in child child psychologists from all around the world and and nothing was working until one day somebody sort of turned up with a football and then if people start playing football mm. and then people start coming out from the shadows and then people have to talk to each other and people have to interact and they made more progress through football than than anything else that they'd tried mm. and they were forming a team and then this team was was gaining in confidence and then they'd got some funding and they were going to travel to one of these kids tournaments and and it was, it was just a, a lovely thing to see happening through something as, as, as basic uh-huh. as, as football. Anyway, and eventually George Ware turned up and, it, and it, was, uh, it was a successful thing. But from that moment, and then that right, was followed by a trip a, to Haiti. awareness
0: of the power of the, the game. Yeah, sleep. on a really sim- a transformative effect on people's lives. Yeah, but a really pragmatic level. How was George Ware? I was
1: beginning to get very, very nervous. Uh-huh. And I think day four, and Rodney actually woke me up. By this stage, I think we'd found a, a bar with a pool table and uh, some bottle bottled Guinness. Oh, yeah. So myself and Scott, the cameraman, had been kicking everyone's ass at pool. And so there were loads of people coming to this bar and they'd like leave their guns on the table <laughs> and, to come and play come and play pool against the two outsiders. So Rodney woke me up and he's like, ah yeah, yeah a pong is here a pong's here and I was like oh thank goodness where is he and he's like he's in Ghana <laughs>
0: like, okay. yeah, that's where the match is
1: yeah but I can't go to Ghana because I haven't got a visa and he's like no no it's okay you can you come you know come so we went to the airport got on a plane everyone was having a massive party because he was coming home flew to Accra and um he, he was at his mum's house so he'd moved his <laughs> some of his family out of the the, the country yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and then for some of the family had been targeted as well So, yeah, and there there he was, and, you know, the door of this minibus slid open, and there there was this guy He like, slapped slapped my leg and jumped into the minibus, and that's how I got to know him. Very, very intense uh, guy. He didn't sleep, but, I mean, he was just on the go all the time. And and when we arrived back, there were thousands of people at the airport. We got to know him a little bit, but, you know, with these things, it's quite superficial. What he was doing was absolutely extraordinary. So the power of football to actually stop a civil war, Mm -hmm. just how
0: can you harness that for something positive? I mean, his power, I mean, obviously then wasn't just, I mean, obviously he didn't have aspirations to be president, but he was a national hero even by then. Mm. I mean, what was his influence like in the country? No, it was extraordinary. He had the power, the, the,
1: the power to stop a civil war through a football match. And that, that's the power of football. So that became really, really apparent. On the one hand, you've got these kids and you have the power to reintroduce them into mm. the life that they deserve through something as simple as football. But on a larger scale within the country, it had the power to stop a civil war, reunite broken communities, put young people on a path towards leadership positions, mm-hmm. which they'd never have availability of in, in any other circumstance. But also it's like, okay, well, if this sport has this power, this latent power, then we better start thinking about ways in which to use it in a systematic or strategic way. And then that, that was followed up with a trip to City Soleil, the slum in, in Haiti, with a guy called Bobby Duval, who had been a politician, had actually been imprisoned by Baby Doc, and came out as a political prisoner, had been become a, a politician. And, and then he'd just uh, given up being a politician because it wasn't actually doing anything. And it wasn't, I don't know, he wasn't just there to pick up the check or, you know, he actually wanted to change things. He realized there was n- you weren't going to be able to change things through being a politician, which I don't think is, it's not just the case in Haiti, is it? Hmm. So if you want to change something nowadays the, the last thing you should do is become a politician yeah. but 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 they, 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 you know they were sending planes back from from the states with anyone that had been caught up with gangs or, or, or drugs or rather than get them in the the penal system yeah. of, of the states from yeah, yeah which is a cost that they were sort of sending them back so, so you know it, it was a really messed up place and again you know something as simple as a community based football organization and then what they were lacking were basic equipment so when I got back from that I was going to quit IMG and I was going to and I just thought we, I, I opened up this cupboard and um, I had all this stuff that I didn't use anymore boots yeah balls and rackets and, and I just thought how many places are there like that in the you know how many homes in the UK have all this stuff that we don't use so I had this idea that we, I was going to get this truck through I can't remember which company I was going to pitch it to a company get this massive truck and we we're going to do like a road show driving around the country picking up all the stuff and then we we're going to send them so, so already then I was like, right, this is what I want to do. But then I was I was advised to, you know, your best to try to create something first before you try and create for others, which I'm not sure if that was the
0: right advice, but mm-hmm. I took it at the time. So yep, I continue that's, to that's work. The, it's a classic advice for any investor in any startup. Don't worry about giving back until you've got something to give back. Yeah. Build your influence, build your power, build your wealth, and then utilize it.
1: Yeah. But the thing is now you can actually build all of those things (coughs) by creating social Mm. impact. Yeah. So that's maybe that's changed since
0: then, right? But so you took the advice, you didn't, you carried on IMG, but very well aware and very conscious still inside you that there was a burning desire to see change happen. Absolutely. Through social impact. And recognizing even more so the latent power of football.
1: Yeah. And, and for, with a very international perspective, because by then I'd traveled to like 50 countries or something. And, and then from there, you start to mature a little bit in terms of seeing how the business works. Mm-hmm. So whether that was a project that I did uh, at UEFA. So I was sort of going to and, to and from there and, and then working with the former head of football at IMG, who set up his own agency that represented elite players. So I got that perspective as well. One of, one of the players that I was working with wanted to start a foundation. I just knew that starting a foundation as, as an as an athlete or celebrity is not a sensible, it's not an effective thing no, to do. It's not scalable. So you're you're doing something on an ego based decision, rather than an impact or an effectiveness um, based decision.
0: So in this, um, but understandable why they do it because there's a, a desire and a will to give back, and the the obvious thing is create a foundation, hire someone to manage it divert some money and then as you say it satisfies the ego but then what happens 10 years down the line when the career ends well by the time you've hired somebody
1: to to run the thing mm-hmm. and then you've worked out what it is that you want to sport and then you worked out how to get the money to that place in an effective way you've spent an, an incredible amount of resource and then like you say the 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 sport careers are very uh, ephemeral you know and, and you see it when when i moved here i think patrick cloyvert was the best paid player in the world and if i say patrick cloyvert now to so my kids you know that they'll no idea so you go from being the king of the world to the queen of the world to being a nobody very quickly and i'm a pundit (laughs) but not not that many if you look at it percentage wise not that many of them actually get a career in punditry and it's ironic as well I'm, I'm, i'm leaping ahead again but but the the people that you charge to advise you about what you do with your life are not people that are around subsequently once your earning potential disappears. And yet they're the people that you give away your decision making capability to during your high earning moments mm-hmm. of, of your career.
0: Well let's let's talk about it I mean how you set up on your own and how Common Goal came about. Yeah, so so I, I sort of from all this from traveling around the world I,
1: I wanted to be in one place for mm-hmm. a while. So I studied strategic communication at a Spanish business school called IE, Instituto mm-hmm. Empresa. And that was good as well. So that was, I was the only person that's ever done it because it's a Spanish course. So I was the only non-Spanish person. So again, these things like appeal to me a little bit. The business school thing, I was always a bit, it's more image than than anything else. And I, I still think that actually, that you're sort of paying to have a brand association, but... But anyway, so the, the language challenge and the fact that it was strategic communication, which I thought would, could be an interesting development on on what I'd done before in terms of content. And so I started sort of advising football players about communication and developing their brand through strategic communication. And one of them um, was going to become an ambassador for, for, a fee, for a part of FIFA. So I was invited to the 2014 World Cup to actually see a festival, Football for Good festival. Nothing surprising because I've been around in... The football marketing world for years, so I knew I know what it's you know I knew what it's like. But it, it was it was strange to to go on a very comfortable flight that's paid for to be picked up from the from the aeroplane, you know, ushered through some fast lane where you don't even have to go through, it, and then chauffeur driven to this hotel in Copacabana mm-hmm. Beach. And of course, I absolutely loved it. And and we went to this festival, you know, which is in like a slum area in the outskirts of Rio, in the favelas, yeah. And, you know, and, and uh, Ronaldo, you know, uh, the, the original Ronaldo was there and Blatter was there and I, I was there. And because of the association with the player, everyone's being nice to you and yeah. you're sort of treated with, with an unnatural importance, which, which I think a lot of people, you know, don't deserve, I certainly didn't deserve. And I just wanted to see what was actually happening. And, I, and it was then that I met this guy called Jürgen Griesbeck, this German guy who ran a network called Street Football World. Yeah. And Jürgen had had this moment in the 90s in Colombia He was there doing his PhD. He was friends with a football player, Andres Escobar, who scored an own goal in the 94 World Cup and and was was subsequently shot. And from that, Jürgen had this crisis about how he could create something positive out of this tragedy, this waste. And and he noticed that in Medellin, there were spaces where people would stop, put away their guns, and they would play football (laughs) for like two hours. And they go away, and and that he had this epiphany, and he gave his money back to the German government for his PhD. Set up a street league in Medellin, and um, mortality rates among 16 to 24 year olds plummeted because there were safe spaces around wow. the, the city. Amazing. And and when I, I I met Jürgen, and it was actually Jürgen running this whole thing. So it was a street football world thing, and, and FIFA put their branding on top of it. They do a lot of good work. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of good people there, but it's just one of these institutions that are in a controlling position in sport that needs to be reformed. Yeah. So, sorry, I met Jürgen for the first time, but then we immediately arranged to meet afterwards, yeah. like to somewhere private, just to talk. And so so from, from Colombia, the German government asked him to come back to do the same, but with yeah. social integration, with immigrants, refugees. Yeah. So he did that to tremendous effect. Then he starts realizing that there are all of these communities, the ones that I'd seen in City Soleil in Monrovia, in medellin and i had been in medellin yeah, yeah. so yeah yeah we would have been in yeah. the same place at the same time all of these places using football as this social tool because it works so well as an engagement tool for uh-huh. young people they had no connection between themselves so he, he sets up this this network in which people can share knowledge best practice access to funding a communication platform and street football world had grown to this uh, you know at the time it was a 100 organizations in in 60 countries it's now 137 in 86 countries I think and there's 2.4 million young people taking part in it and 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 when he was telling me about that I was like well how come I've never heard of it particularly given that you know I've been in the football industry on the edges of it anyway and and was very interested in football and social impact and he he said this is a guy who you know he's a fellow and mm-hmm. and he's going to the world economic forum for you know for years and un consultancy status and and you know he's very very much the top of sport for development and uh, football for good or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it And he's like oh well we've, we've never sought notoriety which is brilliant but at the same time you've got this context with football with corruption mm-hmm. with leadership in terms of administration that's completely lost its credibility with players who are overpaid i'm talking about perceptions mm-hmm. perceptions are yeah. based on reality disassociated from the communities that actually came from in the first place agents all this money disappearing uh, i suppose an, an increasing distance between the the grassroots mm-hmm. the football fans the working class and what it's become mm-hmm. so i was like well now is a very good time not to seek notoriety in a, like a pr kind of way but to at least remind everybody of this power that football has yes so that's how our conversation developed. So I, I agreed to help them with that for one day a week. And the first thing we did is look at rethinking about what an ambassador means. for this. So how can you get ambassadors that actually, rather than just the photo and a photo and maybe a tweet or an Instagram post and one interview a year where you have an interview about the Champions League game and there's one line at the end that says that they're an ambassador and this doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. So we came up with some criteria and we chose these two players one, Juan Mata, who yeah. had won the World Cup with Spain, won the Champions League with Chelsea and was playing for Manchester United, which is the highest grossing football club in the world in terms of um, the commercial side of it. The other player was Megan Rapino, a female player from the US, mm-hmm. gold medal winner, World Cup winner, gay rights activist. They, they seemed to fit the criteria. And then it's like, how do you reach them in a way that makes sense in this weird and wonderful industry? So I sort of knew about how to do that. And they both said yes. Mm-hmm. So so we started to to look at how we could leverage them for street football world and, uh, and and it became apparent we're in a world where revenues income is going up year on year by in between 6 and 12% and it has done for the last 12 years so sat you know look at footballer salaries mm-hmm. or, or or that that's a sort of I guess an obvious target mm-hmm. but that's football salaries last year in the UK 2.9 billion pounds now I, I can I can understand that everybody you know deserves their share of the pie and everybody if they have a talent they deserve to be rewarded but like how much can you make and that's money that's just disappearing Mm. as well it's nothing not a cent of that's being reinvested back Mm. into the sport
0: in order to make a real impact street football world will continue to grow and it's brilliant but it'll never it will be an exponential sort of uh, separation between the growth of street football world and where the revenues are going if there's not something there to close that gap yeah exactly
1: so common goal was the yeah. mechanism mm-hmm. to do that the the idea is to try to align something to, to the business of football that could be systemic within the business of the sport and something that that players who are the people that generate the most attention mm-hmm. could sort of lead the charge so so that that was the idea behind common goal i was told by everybody mm-hmm. that it wasn't going to work because mm-hmm. it, it's hard to get to speak to elite football players on a human to human level so you've got this thing where in a group of 20 people how many are interested in creating a you know a social legacy with whatever they're doing in life it's a, at the moment it's a pretty small percentage so how are you going to get the chance to sit down with all 23 players of FC Barcelona in a dressing room to have a human being to human being discussion in an environment where they're earning an average salary of mm-hmm. seven million pounds a year and they have agents around them and to, yeah, to, to find out those outliers who are actually going to engage with an
0: idea. But it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's a it's a journey. It's a transformation in terms of cultural. It's an educational process for all young footballers to start to make them more socially aware and the potential impact they can make as well, unrecognised. And so it, it has to start small. Unless an organisation like FIFA or it came from a broadcaster dictating to a league. I mean, I could... I can see that something when you've got a franchise, something like the MLS, control all the, the, the teams within the MLS and can dictate the way that they operate. Mm. It's easier within those US-based sort of franchise systems than something like the Premier League, where every club has its own individual power base. You're never going to be able to implement change at speed and scale so it has to happen you're not although i think there's a great hunger mm. to do
1: that because uh, what, what's been mm. driving the discussion so far has just been a single thing which is money and and, and i think clubs are increasingly beginning to think about what they represent mm. and beyond financial performance and beyond athletic performance it's like what does our club mean what does our club mean to our community what what can we stand for what values can we reflect and cultivate and live and, and and i think that's really interesting you're right that it it takes time we, we were hoping to launch this in so it was 18 months ago with 11 players and so juan mata said yes straight away and, and then everybody else i spoke to as soon as you said one percent the conversation ended
0: it's is crazy isn't it when you think about the sort of the the salaries and even outside the players i mean just taking looking at the the revenue of clubs. Now I know outside of the Premier League and so once you get into the lower leagues, it's a, it, there's a there's a gulf between the haves and the have-nots. But even if you just look at the Premier League, those revenues that come in from broadcasting rights, the gate revenues, and what they are putting into grassroots and therefore then the contribution of the players, there's still so much money around. Why aren't players recognising and agents recognising the potential power to benefit the game long term because I, I, I think agents are hired
1: for one reason only and so it's not in their interests firstly it's just not in their mindset to think about value other than adding immediate com- commercial value yeah, yeah. adding numbers to, to a bank account of which they take a percentage and then, then the other thing is this percentage model. So one percent, when it launched, so Juan Mata was the only mm. player that we launched with. So Hence the fact that it, you know everyone was saying it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And we were very lucky that a player in Germany who plays for Bayern Munich, oh, who just, Hummels. yeah, yeah. who just won the World Cup, read about it. So the fact that he actually read about it is, is something. You know, the fact that he's someone who's still informed about what's going on around mm-hmm. him is makes him an outlier in the, in the industry. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I just mean that's the. People are very cocooned in these mm. in these elite sport environments, and and going back to agents, I, th- I think the one of the biggest rooms for improvement, and I actually think it's like tragic that mm. you have the talent and then a lot of luck along the way to get to this position where you are being paid to do what you love, mm. and you're being paid. You know, in, in the UK, I think the, the the average salary in the Premier League is now close to one point five million a year. It's a lot of money, and you know, and, and the bigger names in the bigger clubs, you know, you're talking seven to twelve million pounds a year to do something which is a talent that you are lucky enough to to have, and you've had to work very hard and have a lot of yeah yeah. yeah I understand all of that, but why is it that there are athletes from, particularly from the US? So Stephen Curry, for example. Mm, so yeah. I met the guy, his business partner, at this thing at. Um, Instagram and Facebook invited me to talk at. So that that's, you know, that's an indication, the fact, and the World Football Summit in, in Asia, they invited me to go there and, and talk about common goals. So people are beginning to mm. show some interest because normally at those things, there's not a place on the stage for social impact movement. Mm. But he, Stephen Curry, so he's got a $200 million contract and and he just understands that that it gives him a platform to create, a sustainable social impact, a true legacy beyond, you know. As, like, as well, does LeBron. There's a long history of, of, of athletes, activist athletes in the U.S., particularly in terms of race. And, you know, and t- taking the knee now with Kaepernick. Yeah. You know, it's, still, it's still happening, which lead, leads you to, to the first women player to join, female players mm-hmm. to join Common Goal were Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino. So, in the, you know, in the U.S., they're, they're better known than Messi. And they're taking their federation to court at the moment for inequality of working conditions. So equal play, equal pay. These are people that clearly understand that beyond the athletic, I suppose there's two things, you know, you're after winning loads of stuff and you're after earning lots of money. But beyond that, this, this understanding that what a platform that gives us. So whether it's Lebron or Curry or, you know, or Jesse Owen or uh, Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. in football, like who are those characters in football? There's, seriously. So, so you've got Raheem Sterling. So he's a, he's a guy that plays for Manchester City and in, in England. And he made a comment about institutionalized racism in the press. So when he buys his mum a house, he's shown as blingy and flash and vulgar, whereas if a white player does it, you know, so that's, that's where it came, up. it came from, a portrayal of him. And he just won an award. Last week he won an award for that, for being a, you know an, an, an anti-discrimination yeah. activist. So you don't have to do a great deal to claim some kind of space and some kind of authority and create some kind of positive impact. Mm-hmm. So, so it's sort of waiting to happen. And when people see that you win awards for it, yeah. and those awards drive your social media engagement, and that social media engagement drives brands to talk to you, mm-hmm. So that then the agents come in and go, "Ah, actually, we can make money out of this. See, that's the thing thing that I'm surprised that someone... There's there's lots of people that say, oh, no, but they're doing Mm. things, but they don't want to talk about it. That's sort of one of the excuses for why people aren't getting engaged. But with
0: Kaepernick, you would think that there there would be some enterprising, socially aware football, that would go, hang on a second, there's an opportunity here. So starting with one player, Mm -hmm. now 18 months later, there's
1: 90. Yeah. So from all different levels, and $1.4 million raised... And, and that money goes directly into this network of existing football, mm-hmm. high-impact, community-based yeah, like, NGOs. So you're not having yeah. to reinvent the wheel. It's yeah. really effective. So the questions I ask people is like, do you want to create something beyond what you're doing economically or, 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 or sport-wise in terms of winning? And have things?
0: something that's trying to compete one player against another player's foundation yeah. and potentially sort of diluting the impact. Is it,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't really matter how much you earn either. So you can be like one of the... You know Juan, Juan Mata, Juan or Killani, mm. the the Italian that that joined, you know, I guess is on like seven million a year mm. or something, or or that there's female players who are earning seven thousand a year. The one percent is, is equal in terms of its meaning, yeah. and and actually you don't notice it either. Even if you've got ten dollars, it's it's ten cents, mm. so you still got nine ninety. So you don't really notice the giving part of it. But if everybody obviously contributes their their one percent, and then as a collective, it becomes really powerful. But now we're at the stage where it's like, if you want to create something, if you want to create something socially through football, using football as the tool, because that's, I guess, the USP of this is that you're doing it through football, the sport that's giving you everything, whether you're a brand, a federation, a union, or a player, or an agency, anyone making money from the sport, if you want to give back through the sport in an effective way, it's a pretty good platform to do it. It's very well structured. It's very simple to understand. It's very transparent. And also because of the the international nature of this, that you could choose if you want to contribute and say you wanted to go to Scotland and uh, where do you live in the States? New York. And New York. So Mm -hmm. you could could actually say Scotland and New York. Mm -hmm. And you could say female empowerment or access to education or construction of peace or HIV and AIDS education, whatever the social theme that you'd like to align your... That's where you divert your percentage. We will then give you a list of organisations in the network that fit in with your personal choices. And say, okay, well, your 1% can all go to, so you can select to to these organizations or you can have half of your 1% going to there. And then the other half Mm -hmm. um, at this moment, like the refugee crisis, we can all give a part of our percentage to this and that will create an impact. And what's brilliant about it is the the sustainability. So I mentioned the Canadian player before, Erin, Erin McLeod. So she joins. Now we have twelve players. That, that that's legacy. One of them, one of them that joins, seventeen. She's signing her first professional contract, leaving high school. Born in nineteen nine, uh, sorry, two thousand and two. But it's brilliant. So Aaron, who's thirty-five, you talk about legacy. Her legacy will be this player, who's now seventeen, mm-hmm. being part of Common Goal for the rest of her career. And if it's not Common Goal, whatever other mm-hmm. mechanism. The thing, the thing that you find in in sport. On the one hand, you've got Bill Drayton. So yale oxford harvard and decides to, to leave commercial to recognizes the power of investing in individuals in individual leaders and in change mm-hmm. makers which is what these organizations are trying to do yeah and, and and one of his famous phrases is that you can't change the world by building a moat so it's this inclusivity the sharing that, that that's going to change the world and yet in sports marketing we've been stuck in these ever since i was in hong kong in the mid 90s it hasn't changed and it certainly hadn't changed for years and years before in which everything is parcelled and sold in rights deals that you know three to five years um and and so so there's this culture of of ownership of of protectionist of everything being being constructed with huge walls around it and and the rest of the world has just changed, uh-huh. so so that there's this there's this huge catch up that needs to take place. You know, the music industry resisted it for a time, the film industry resisted it for a time. Football is still clinging on to FIFA is the same, the FA is the same, FC Barcelona is the same, player salaries are the same, the relationships with agents is the same. None none of these key processes within the business of the sport has changed, whereas obviously all the processes of anything other industry yeah. yeah any supply chain any mm-hmm. has has been completely turned on its head by the digital um revolution so you've got globalization and technology and and where how is that going to manifest itself in football could be through rights so uh-huh. so you know going back to the img days the, the guy and guy in hong kong at the time peter hutton has now just been hired as head of Sport at at Facebook, and they brought him in to 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 buy rights. And and Peter's actually a a lovely guy who loves football. So he started off as a TV producer and uh, ended up being CEO of Eurosport, and it's it's now in this incredible job. Well, (laughs) no, 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 but it is no, it is an opportunity to create. No no matter what you think about Facebook, mm -hmm. it's still an incredibly powerful mm -hmm. job at this moment in Mm -hmm. time in 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 the development of the sports industry to see what are they going to do? Because if they choose to, obviously these ridiculous amounts of money that mm-hmm. rights go for, they're ridiculous amounts of money. But for the tech giants, you know, no, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's a just, drop in the ocean. Yeah. So, so up, up until now, just, you know, to go back to common goal, what's been really motivating for the last few months is now we're at 18 months. We're getting people that reach the end of their first year and 100% of people have recommitted for a second year. Mm-hmm. So that's a it's pretty amazing, good sign. Yeah. And, and why? Because they get to see the impact they're creating without even noticing it because you don't notice that mm. the, the economic commitment all the time, because so, it's, it's, it's all up and running. The, the other thing is from a business perspective, it, may, it just makes sense to do. Mm. Like you will engage more. Quan Matter is a really good example. So from August 2017 to August 2018, um, in terms of measuring his athletic performance, therefore his brand as an athlete was mm. the most disappointing year of his sporting career. So Manchester United were awful. Mm. He was on the bench. He was dropped by the Spanish national team. And yet he was on the front cover of L'Equipe, 442, Gazeta, Marca. He was Mm -hmm. in over 300 media. Nielsen do some pro bono work for us. Social media, 98% positivity. Mm -hmm. His social media answers grew by 60%. And he Uh signed a watch deal with Uh IWC. And he won five five awards. All because of what he was doing off the pitch. Uh So, So if people can't understand that that's the way that they're going, then also you get to the point, and this is where both Thomas Price and and Jürgen and Juan as well, the the co-founders, have really helped me understand that because I'm so persistent as a person, I find everything a challenge. Therefore, I I, I keep going, yeah. And and I have to learn to spend my time and energy more with, with more purpose in terms of realizing when you have explained everything. So. This is how it works. This is what it does. Do you want to be involved? And, and and if we have to go much deeper than that, then you're probably not the right person at this time to talk to. And maybe we'll come back and meet you again mm-hmm. in five years yeah. time.
0: Sow the seed and then move on. Yeah. And that's sort of hard for me to do mm-hmm. because of the kind of person that I am. But there's something in your persistence and drive. That reminds me of Bob Geldof and his, his desire to drive change in the music industry. Because mm-hmm. he faced exactly the same indifference within musicians at some stage.
1: I, I, I hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, I was the, the head of independent programming yeah. at IMG. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. the place I used to work. And, and the guy sat there. He goes, oh, no, 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 like, like this social impact charity stuff doesn't, no, no one's interested in it. Don't, don't want to pick on him but i mean if, if you're an independent well mm-hmm. not, yeah an independent filmmaker you've got this, this 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 job in which you can decide whatever sort of content projects you want and you think it's not interesting and and also the whole narrative <clears throat> around charity needs to change mm-hmm. it's not charity it's social impact right, exactly, it's social yeah. entrepreneurship mm-hmm. it's empowerment it's creating young leaders it's transforming societies it's not
0: just sort of i think it's the same giving. i think there's a there's a parallel to be drawn the same way that it would speak to people in the, the early stages of the internet they would go, this internet thing is just a passing phase. It's not important. It's never going to catch on the same way that people don't recognize that there's a seismic sort of change in the, 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 how society is organized. There's a fundamental breakdown in trust in governments, in institutions, the role of church, traditional sort of ways that the people, communities are taken out on, on poverty as address, injustice and inequality is no longer really, you can no longer rely on governments and traditional me- measures of taxation mm. and corporations have obviously, because and we won't get into the 1% of the 1% and the, sort of the, the, the increase in gulf and inequality and in income. Therefore, it does come down to enlightened individuals, enlightened organizations and enlightened NGOs to galvanize People's awareness and will and desire and belief that they can make a difference mm. together, and it isn't. Let's say it's not an overnight thing. It's we're in a transformational period, the same way that we were in the early stage of the internet. And people will eventually wake up and catch up and go, well, "Yeah, we have to be part of this." So, for people like Mata and Hummels, their legacy will be cemented because they will be the ones that were the early trailblazers to this, and obviously being inspired by people like yourself and 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 Jürgen. I hope so. It has, uh, yeah, it has yeah. to happen because yeah. what, what, what other alternative is there? What, what, what's, what's
1: happening now is that people, you know, the big brands in, mm-hmm. in football and the big federations, the big uh, unions are beginning to notice what we're doing mm-hmm. and, and ask, and but they still want to own it. And the whole thing is that we don't own it. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, sounds strange, but I don't care about, if you've mm-hmm. got a different mechanism that's more efficient than common goal, then I don't really but that's, that's, care that it's common goal or not. It's just, it can be anything as long as something is done because 1% of what was turned over last year would be 400 million mm-hmm. and nobody would notice it. And yet if that's invested efficiently, it's a times eight investment yeah. because it's so, it's, so, it's so well set up. So that year on year, as, and it's going up by 12% year on year, would literally change the world. I mm. mean, it's not like a tree huggy sort of statement. It's like it would no, change. No, it's the hard world. economics.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It, let's go fast forward ten years. Oh, god, that's so good because actually, that the you know talking about incorporating purpose into what you're doing, yeah. you know. So, so I think so, for some people, mm. it's just clear from day one. For 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 me, it's been much more of a a slower process. Mm-hmm. But the moment I've sort of decided to let my uh, Passion and commitment actually dictate what I do, and try not to be a slave to more pragmatic economic uh, motivations. The more inspired I am by thinking about the future, to think in a 10 year span, I would hope that through Common Goal and through other initiatives, the football industry is, is, is genuinely creating a sustainable social impact as a global collective. You know, just thinking about this year. Because, again, it's only 18 months old, so it's still quite new. It's early days, yeah. Um, But, you know, we're we're, we're really ambitious in terms of trying to drive it. So if there's 90 players now, we want 200 by the end of the year. If there's 1.4 million, we want 3 million at the end of the year. And what we have to do is continue to speak to interesting people. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, yeah, the the Da Vinci quote. But but to keep on speaking to people who are positive, who understand what we're doing, Yes, of course, because then we subsequently find that the people around them tend to sort of share a similar mindset. Yeah. So one thing leads to another. Also that there's, that there's, I suppose, a multiplier strategy whereby someone like Aaron McLeod, mm-hmm. one player can subsequently lead to 12 more. And we've got to try and facilitate that process in, in that peer-to-peer thing in the, in the male yeah. players as well. And it's, I don't mean it in an arrogant way, but there's an education job. So I'm going to London next week and I'm speaking to And the, the person I'm speaking to does not want to speak to me. He's a football agent. There was a football agent two weeks ago who asked for money to introduce, present, common goal to his clients. So, you know, talking about people that yeah. inspire you, I don't mind that. No, no. But I, I actually, in a weird way, I enjoyed it. I was yeah. like, oh, right. So a human being can be like this. You know, that's what we need to be aware of. Yeah. We to- need to be aware of that. And, and, and if it was, okay, if you've got 20 clients and you can guarantee that they'll join Common Goal, from a business perspective, it's like, okay, well, if you want like five or 10 grand, depending on how much they're earning, if they're earning 6 million a year, that's 60,000 a year mm-hmm. that they'll pay. in. so, you know, for an investment of 10, that, that, that's then an ethical question. <clears throat> but, but the fact that somebody would sit there looking at you and say, okay, well, you know, for X amount of money per player, I will present Common
0: Goal to them with Mm -hmm. no guarantee. But but it's a pincer movement. I mean, you've got to have that sort of multi-layered strategy where, yeah, you're speaking to the agents, you're getting one agent on board and then hopefully have a domino effect eventually. But at the same time, you have to go around the agents and use other means to which create a desire within the players themselves. It's push and pull strategy. Yeah, but it's really hard to get to them. And a a lot of players that I know
1: personally, through my job as the consultant Mm -hmm. with the communication stuff and the media, media stuff, that they're nice you know they're nice people but they they're blissfully unaware mm. of what's going on mm. and 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 the the strange thing is it's actually in the interests of the people around them that they remain that way because by saying okay you just decide everything i might actually think that that's making me more comfortable but actually you're denying yourself the fundamental human right so it's a really weird mm. situation so i think that would be the the deeper change in terms of i've i've got this thing where sowing seeds so even if it means smacking your head against the wall i'm quite a good person to do that because Mm -hmm. i'm quite persistent and i believe in what we're doing so i can just show people with case studies like the one i explained with juan mata or whether it's serge nabry the young Bayern munich player who's one of the young stars of common goal who's just gets it and he's he's doing a trip this year as well Mm -hmm. to africa to the country his dad's from and when we start showing these impact stories about what this is creating and mm-hmm. the individuals that are being positively affected by this very small mm. commitment i think i think that's going to bring it to life further but but also it will be just an an understanding and, and then you've got the institutional stuff yeah. so so sefer in the, the president of uefa joined that's brilliant i mean that's in, a as, massive as an individual and then so you've got him and then you've got eric Cantonar joined
0: yeah
1: so just, i don't really know, I yeah. don't, don't really know what you know what you're going to do with that, mm. but but um, as this sort of mentor figure. So, so you've got these sort of influential people, and then we've got a couple of brands: so Banco Santander, EA Sports, mm. and and they're they're beginning to show. Interest. Have you written
0: Have you written a manifesto?
1: Well, no, that, that there is a sort of manifesto. Yeah, mm. if you if you join, that there's a pledge agreement, which is a sort of mm. statement of intent that, that everybody signs. Yeah, not a contract. we we're, we're in an interesting space now where we're talking about. So it's a Danish club was the first club to get involved. This FC Nordsland, so from the from the chairman all the way down. Mm-hmm. So you've got the under twelve teams to the first team that competed in the Europa League this this season. Mm-hmm. It's a big team. I know it's not like Barcelona or or Man City, but the from the under twelve on, onwards, each each season they 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 select an organisation from this network, and throughout the season they do different activities with them. And then in the summer, rather than go to one of these tournaments where you've got like the youth teams of Ajax and Man United and mm-hmm. Arsenal and Valencia, they actually go to visit the organizations. So you just think just, about, and because they're football-based organizations, they can play football, they can uh-huh. train, they can, but, you know, it's this huge culture thing. Can you imagine at the age of 12 going to Lesotho and seeing how football is used as a as, as a tool um, to educate people about HIV age? That will mean that by the time these, or those kids are 17, 18, and becoming professionals, if they make it to the top of the pyramid, they won't have to be... Like Hummels or Killini yeah. or Alex Morgan or, or Juan Mata to understand the power that their platform as footballers can mm. have. So that that's pretty inspiring. Talking about where we will be in ten years, yeah, that it will be uh, and the multipliers, it will be that. And and I think maybe agents who are hired to to make more money will be involved in those moments in which that is the the, the key focus, but they shouldn't be. I don't think I don't think you should give away your right to decide what you do as a human being to someone whose main focus is to make you as much money as uh-huh. possible. Because and they, themselves, yeah, and themselves, mm. yeah, because they have their self-interest, but also, even if they, you know, if you're smart as an agent, you align mm-hmm. your self-interest to the interest of your client. Yeah. So anyone that's any good at that w- would have worked that out pretty sim- uh, pretty early. They don't, as people, what makes them very good at being an agent <laughs> doesn't necessarily make them very good at thinking about other stuff like like the happiness of Mm. the player so again we're talking to psychologists
0: now so the well they're thinking very short termist. as you say the business hasn't moved on they're living in this bubble that could have been could be the 1970s in terms of the way they operate with players i mean i'll bet you the half the the agents that someone like george best had are probably probably similar similar and cut from the same cloth as the agents that are running some of the players of today and i've I've been around long
1: enough Mm. to see what happens when the player career for mm. all the hugs and the we're best yeah. mates and hot shared holidays and stuff. Went after five, ten years after they've ended their, no, their, their, their earning career. But that's the
0: thing. If they take a, a more of a long-term perspective, and as you were saying, and consider the player like a Steph Curry as his brand and how that brand will grow beyond the sport, the upside for the agent is there as well. And that's why there's so clearly a new education for agents. So but clearly. And also you've got the, like,
1: issues like mental health mm-hmm. in, in sports. So spent a morning with uh, the head psychologist of one of the biggest club sides in the world, mm-hmm. been there for seven years. And, you know, and I started off going, you know, beyond the money and the titles, you know, talking about player motivations, you know. And she's mm-hmm. like, wait, 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 no, 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 you've got that wrong. It's not, it's not that. Play, players aren't after money and they're not after titles. They want love. So sometimes you sort of, f- you, you, you like jump mm-hmm. over these very, because that's quite simple, isn't mm-hmm, it? Yeah, But that's the basis of like, one of the leading experts in her mm-hmm. careers, they need love. So and how do you create that in a, in a modern career? You mm-hmm. create it by creating links between uh-huh. what you're doing with communities, mm-hmm. with people, with lives, with young people. Um, so, so you've got, have you got this thing about, and talking about in 10 years time, my vision is that there's a clear understanding about what success means in sport. Mm-hmm. A, B, that there's a clear understanding that, A better person makes a better player and we'll have proof points to show that as we're building up proof points to show that as as a brand, as a product, you become more attractive to consumers and to other brands that want to align with your brand. If you've got a credible social commitment, I think in in the future, if you aren't, if you're an athlete and you do not, no matter how brilliant you are, you can have, okay, say you have messy, maybe there are exceptions, but that is once in a generation talent i think everybody else to become an appealing player you will have to have some kind of social element to your personality yeah. if not i just think people will, will not support you fans won't support you clubs won't want you and brands won't want to align
0: themselves with you no that's for sure i and th- i think that's where the real part's going to come from yeah is the sponsors and the brands it makes sense to no, me. It that will it, go. That, it's yeah. no, there's no question it will go that way. It will happen. The question is how long yeah. it will take, right? Mm. Well,
1: if, if like 2030 mm. is a really important date for, for us in our heads. Okay. Why is that? So, well, because we're aligned to the, the SDGs. The yeah. Sustainable okay. Development yeah. Goals. So, in terms of, of the causes that, that people want to, so the uh-huh. social challenges that people want to help, but also we're thinking about if, if you start looking at the, the football infrastructure, so you start looking mm. at certain things, so the transfer market, that's ridiculous. So how can at least a little bit of that money mm. that's evaporating from the game yeah. be paid back into it? But also hosting the way in which that process is, is currently decided and is inefficient, it's corrupt, it's very expensive. So what about and Jürgen Griesbeck, the the founder of Street Football World and Common Goal gets the credit for this. It's a really inspirational thought that what about if rather than deciding hosting for, in in the case of football, for a World Cup, rather than thinking about a geographical area, you think about a set of values Mm -hmm. or a social challenge. So say we had a female empowerment World Cup and Mm -hmm. this is what this World Cup in 2030 is going to try and achieve in terms of female empowerment. And from that, Starting point. You then have applications from countries who can best help you achieve that social goal, and take it that way around. That's right. And and I think brands would love it. Yeah, they would. So that you'd make more money. Yeah, uh, with that, and everybody would feel brilliant about this this event. So so you know, is that achievable? It you know it it is because it makes a lot of sense in a in, in a lot of ways. But you need people to to drive change in, in in that area because it's not going to come from within FIFA. traditional organizations it's not going to come because yeah. because everyone's comfortably living in switzerland flying around in business class and staying in six star hotels
0: yeah getting to the quick of our questions how does curiosity or you clearly a very curious person and your creativity affect the way you do your work it helps
1: when, when you bump against the barrier then it helps just mm. to come out with ways of getting around it or under it or over it but but also, I, I think you you become informed about your focus of interest by other stuff. So that that, that would be the principal thing for me. So thinking it. about brand identity yeah. or, or writing skills can help me in terms of what I'm trying to do in terms of develop a social impact movement through surprising
0: ways. Okay. Setbacks. It's not the circumstances that define you. It's your response. What response to certain circumstances have been pivotal in your life? I already mentioned like setbacks. the
1: uh, tend to be a stimulation rather than uh, rather than anything else. So I, I think had people not said that Common Goal wasn't going to work, maybe yeah. I wouldn't have stuck with it. That's good. <laughs> um, and that's what you need to do, right? Or, or if not, then we're never going to change anything. Yeah. So, And, and, and you know, how do you rate success? People say, how, well, how come more players haven't signed up? You know, why haven't the whole Manchester United team signed up? Like it's a miracle that anyone signed up when you look at the way the the business of athlete representation is, is carried out
0: nowadays. So I just see it in a different way. We consider education to be the key to positive change in society. If you were handed the keys to uh, what you say, the mayor's office, Downing Street or the White House, or let's just say a certain organisation <laughs> based in Central Europe that looks after football, what would you start? Uh, what key changes would you make to the education system that would improve future opportunities for youth, particularly in football? Radical transparency.
1: An institutionalized, contractual agreement, established relationship between revenue generation and social investment. A leadership program in terms of empowering, identifying, empowering future leaders of the sport from diverse backgrounds and total inclusion in terms of diversity and race to Brilliant. start with.
0: Brilliant. That's, that's yeah, that's fantastic. You
1: that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah definitely we're buying into it and yeah, uh, uh, and, uh, yeah and economy flights and <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, the. what principles do you stand by i think honest i think honesty and openness and trying to help other people trying to help other people okay yeah.
0: what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision
1: Yeah, I think leave my job in London and move, move to Barcelona to pursue something more purpose focused Mm -hmm. was a hard choice to make because when you're in that dynamic with the salary and, um, but yeah, don't, don't regret it for a second. Okay. That was 14 years
0: ago. Where do you go to discover new ideas when you need space to think?
1: (laughs) yeah with four kids <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: um the bathroom yeah. no, no no I try I try to, I try to uh I try to find some some time to to walk or go for a run yeah I suppose that that would be the way and uh, and also sometimes switching off actually so I, I still read although uh I quite often fall asleep like <laughs> after six pages but I do read because I think I find by switching off Sometimes yeah. you actually can connect to something that you're trying to grapple with. Who are your influences or inspirations? Um, you know, we're talking about athlete activists, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that there's quite a long list of athletes mm-hmm. that, that I think are inspiring. But I think at the moment, and I, I just, just because they're people that I've just met, um, I'd say Erin McLeod, Canadian goalkeeper that I explained before with, yes. you know, so an interest in, 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 in mindfulness, in psychology, in art, also, an interest in using football as a as, as a platform to inspire young girls to 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 achieve anything that they'd like, um, and also to give everybody a fearlessness in terms of sexual orient, orientation. So she's really sort of pushing the the boundary about what what it means to be a, an athlete, and she's inspired um, a whole team of players to from the Canadian team to join her on Common Goal. So she's pretty inspirational. Ebru Koksai, who's a Turkish woman that that um, I spent some time with um, over the over the last couple of days she she was the CEO of Galatasaray, right. which is like the yeah. the biggest or one of the two biggest yeah. so it's not to polarize the, yeah. <laughs> yeah so she, she, she became the CEO of that obviously the, the only CEO in the history of Turkish yeah. sport um former banker an extraordinary woman and who, who's recognized the, the the power of football. And this is where we completely align that I think football, uh, female football is going to be huge in terms of the growth of, of Common Goal, but, but I think it's going to, female football is going to be absolutely vital to the, the to reforming the sustainability of the game, sustainability of the game, but also reforming the, the current structure of the administration yeah. of the game. I think women are going to get going, going to be leaders in that. And, and also I think football as a platform is an incredible platform to strive towards gender equality, mm-hmm. female empowerment. So I'm really inspired by a lot, a lot of the women in the game because they've got nothing to lose. Uh, as Ibru said the other day, she, she doesn't have any favours. She doesn't owe anyone any favours. So she's not afraid to to change, to mm-hmm. suggest change. And I find that really inspiring because um, I don't meet that many men <laughs> <Yeah>. like that.
0: <laughs> oh my God, that's sad. What's
1: your perspective on failure? It's just a necessary part of the journey, isn't it? Who have
0: you met? that's most surprised you
1: that agent the other day that asked for money to
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah well let's not name him yeah, yeah. So, leave uh, him out an, in the wilderness an, an
1: agent asked for money to suggest a non-profit organization to his players mm. it but not even in a negative way just in a way in which helps me understand that the, the, the yeah. what what some people are like but um yeah I, i'd say you know i could say Aaron mcleod would mm. be that. that was just yeah. a hugely surprising mm-hmm. telephone conversation when you realize that this person who is a player which also means that we need to treat them differently mm-hmm. we need to treat athletes differently and i suppose that's true of other sort of high profile uh activities that you know that, that we, we we need to give them the opportunity to express themselves as, as human beings mm-hmm. as well but erin certainly uh changed my perspective about what you can achieve while having a successful athletic
0: career great Who's made you reevaluate evaluate yourself?
1: I'd say uh, Jürgen Griesbeck, that chance meeting in Rio de Janeiro in, in 2014. Um, with, without, without suggesting it actually himself, which I find is the case with most inspiring people. It's not like a didactic thing. It's just you meet somebody and it creates a reflection in your head that subsequently creates a change in your life. So Jürgen, who's been in the sport for development or football for good space, very successfully for the whole of his career i realized that aligning a career that's been on you know in and around the f- sports marketing the football industry the, the unification of those two things was quite powerful um and then and it sounds really corny but my kids as well yeah. you know, just because they're yeah. so honest and they have such different set of references to me that it's constantly
0: uh, keeping them on my toes in yeah, terms it's of technology always refreshing Technology and, and, and culture. As well, well. Like you just answered the next question, how do you keep up with technology? So it's probably, yeah, yeah I'm, so of, I'm forced to. Yeah, But
1: also, uh, you know, the, the average age group
0: in, in Common
1: Goal is less than half of mine. And the latest player to join was born in
0: 2002. So yeah, that keeps me, world. War, yeah, world you've world got, got to keep up. Yeah. 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 The impossible question. What would your advice be to someone just about to graduate study? Might have a dream goal, a grand ambition. It's been told it's impossible. I'd be so interested to find out who it was that said that
1: it's impossible and why and what kind of frustrations and disappointments disappointments <laughs> yeah. they have in their life to have said that to a young mm. person. But I would say to possibly uh, evaluate the reasons why they said that and to mm. take them into consideration, um, but without a shadow of a doubt to to follow their their heart and um, and and go for it and and look for people around them
0: who are likely to support them because Mm. there's more and more of us around. Yeah. And you're on that journey for sure. We finish with two questions. What book would you want us to offer listeners that submit the best comments? A book about? Anything you want, anything you think someone should read. um, Stephen King. Okay. I'm I'm liking liking
1: this one. Stephen King wrote a book about writing called On Writing.
0: Uh, Yeah, I heard
1: about that. And it is brilliant. It is the most... Unpretentious, yeah. amusing, uh-huh. and engaging story about the craft of writing. Mm-hmm. So that really, really surprised me.
0: Okay, um, yeah. it's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. Who should we interview next? Geography
1: wasn't an an issue. I think you should definitely interview ibru who I mentioned, the the, the Turkish former CEO of mm-hmm. of Galatasaray, and she's all, she's also the chairwoman of Women in Sport, which is an, uh, an organization that they started quite recently and now has five thousand members. Um talk about, you know, the need for something. Yeah. Um, so uh, you could speak to Jürgen Griesbeck, the the founder of Street Football World and Common Goal. You could talk to Tom and Thomas Price. You should definitely speak to Juan Mata mm-hmm. if you're in Manchester. Yeah, you could speak to Erin. She's mm-hmm. in Sweden. Well, also, also Moya Dodd, very interesting lady. Moya um, is an Australian lawyer, used to play football for Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she became one of the first women to become uh, an executive committee member of FIFA. Um, so she, she, she's no longer with FIFA, a very smart lady, um, who I think is going to be very, very important in the second part of what yeah. I was saying about reforming the right, football exactly. industry and women being leaders in that
0: space. Obviously, thank you very much, Ben, for the time Pleasure. Um, you spent with us and I acknowledge you for what I've noted is I think is a great integrity, a refreshing nonconformity. And and we meet some very interesting, diverse guests who've done amazing things, but I'd call that one out. And your unconventional thinking and approach to the way you've lived your life. Add to that, I think, your humility and the strong values that you bring and your relentless passion for chasing after what you believe is right. And I think it's great. And uh, we'll do anything we can to help further common goals by connections, um, ideas or whatever, because I think it's... uh, The Impossible Network want to be associated with an amazing initiative like this. So That's a lovely thing to hear, and thanks a lot. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe, and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at Network. This show is a Fabrica Collective production and is produced by Bettina Michelli and Elaine Castillo-Keller. For now, be curious, be creative and be open to serendipity. See you next time.